You're listening to Soundbar, a podcast on white-collar defense, presented by Goodwin. Burlingame, California, is a city of about 30,000 people located on the San Francisco Peninsula near the airport. It's about 18 miles south of Oracle Park, where the San Francisco Giants play. Giants win! A World Series win for the San Francisco Giants! For the third time in the last five years. On Monday nights in 2002 and 2003, you would have seen a curious sight outside a strip mall in Burlingame. You would have seen a tall man, six foot seven with a shaved head, dumpster diving outside one of the storefronts in this strip mall. You might have called the cops, but this tall man was the cops. He was Jeff Nowitzki, an IRS agent and a former jock in his own right. He had high jumped seven feet in high school and played some college basketball at San Jose State. Davitsky was searching through the trash of a company called Bay Area Laboratory Cooperative, better known as Balco. He did not have a search warrant, but no warrant was required for searching through people's trash after a 1986 Supreme Court decision, Greenwood v. California. Nowitzki's Balco investigation was the beginning of federal law enforcement's foray into baseball's so-called steroid crisis. The lessons of those law enforcement efforts still resonate today as the Department of Justice appears committed to attempting to purify NCAA college basketball recruiting just as it attempted to purify Major League Baseball 20 years ago. The investigation of Balco and Balco's owner, Victor Conte, who incidentally had played bass for Tower of Power in the 70s. But more importantly, the Balco investigation, whether originally intended to, or maybe not, led to San Francisco Giants star, Barry Bonds. And Bonds hits one high! Hits it deep! And law enforcement's zealous pursuit of bonds is a case study in what the Department of Justice might call a target-driven investigation. My guest today is lifelong baseball and Detroit Tigers fan Mark Perlstein. Mark was a federal prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston from 1989 to 2000, including stints as chief of the Economic Crimes Unit, first assistant to the U.S. Attorney, and acting U.S. Attorney. For the last couple of decades, Mark has been a white-collar defense lawyer at McDermott, Will, and Emery. Mark and I spoke about Balco, about Barry Bonds, and other things. We hope you enjoy it. Mark, good morning. Good to see you. Good morning. So... The Balco investigation that we're going to talk about today was not the first time that Major League Baseball and the criminal law had intersected in what you might call a systemic way. Uh, Everybody remembers the 1919 Black Sox scandal, uh, which resulted in the prosecutions of several members of the White Sox on state law conspiracy charges in Illinois. Uh, Everyone found not guilty there, by the way, who went to trial. Uh, and there's always been isolated prosecutions of famous athletes for, you know, both white and non-white collar crimes. Who can forget the pride of Detroit in the 1960s, Denny McLean? Well, Denny McLean has achieved something that has not been done in a long, long time. Not his 30th win of the year. The first major league hurler to win 30 games since Dizzy Dean did it September the 30th, 1934. What do you remember about Denny McLean, Mark, as a life, as a diehard and lifelong Detroit Tigers fan? Well, he was a two-time Cy Young Award winner for the Tigers, who for five years was uh, the best pitcher in baseball. Um, he also was a talented organist who I saw perform at the 1969 Detroit Auto Show. And did, how did he fare after his baseball days were over? Less well. <laughs> Um, D- Denny, even during his career, had um, an affinity for associating with the wrong sorts of people. So in 1970, he was suspended for half a year because he had been affiliating with gamblers and the mob. And then 
Subsequent to his career, his business activities led him to be convicted not once but twice as a, res uh, as a result of federal prosecutions. I, I believe he was uh, charged in one of the earlier uses of RICO in a non-organized crime context. That is correct. Before, before diving into the Balco investigation, uh, let's talk about baseball. The Balco investigation begins around 2003. What had been going on in baseball in the decade preceding the beginning of the Balco investigation? So baseball came out of the very damaging strike in 1994 and had this tremendous season in 1998 where Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa chased uh, the home run uh, title and uh, McGuire broke the record. So there was something of a renaissance in baseball, but then subsequently um, rumors began swirling that the records might not be legitimate because uh, some number of players were taking performance-enhancing drugs. And these rumors extended to the 2001 season where Barry Bonds, who we're going to talk about today, hit 73 home runs at the age of 37. That, that, that's correct. And, you know, Major League Baseball was mindful of this. It was taking steps uh, internally to try to address questions of improper use of, of steroids and other performance-enhancing drugs. And, what, and what, what, what did Major League Baseball, you know, begin to do? They had, I think, justifiably been accused of not doing anything for a long period of time. And and of course, they have a, a, a union to deal with, a, a powerful union. Uh, what, what steps did Major League Baseball begin to take? So, so they negotiated with the union and established a drug testing program, which was sort of a first step in understanding whether or not players were abusing uh, these drugs. And that testing program was going to be launched during the, the 2003 season, I believe. I think that's right. Okay, so around the same time as Major League Baseball had announced its beginning of a drug testing program, the Balco investigation begins. And sort of the, it may have been percolating behind the scenes, but certainly it becomes much more public when there's a search warrant executed at the Balco premises in Burlingame, California in September 2003. Um, the agents raided the facility and seized various files on athletes and other evidence of um, alleged uh, steroid use. Just to step back, you've been a prosecutor, you've been a defense attorney. What's involved in getting a search warrant? So it's a much more substantial undertaking than the typical and sort of routine step of issuing a subpoena for documents and other records, for example. Uh, and uh, the government would need to go to a magistrate judge in this instance um, and present evidence in the form of an affidavit detailing um, that there's probable cause to believe a crime had been committed or crimes had been committed and that evidence of the crimes is located at the location to be searched. Is it tough to persuade a magistrate, magistrate to issue a search warrant? Um, it's not a demanding standard. Is it, it's probable cause standard, correct? That's correct. In, in your experience as a prosecutor, were you ever unable to get a search warrant from a magistrate? Not, not once. I had an experience when I was in AOSA where I presented a, a search warrant. You, know, you walk up to the magistrate's chambers you know, with the affidavit. You give it to him. He may ask some questions. He may not. Uh, this magistrate, I, it was a short affidavit. I handed it to him. He read it. He looked at me and he said, those bastards, and he signed it. Um, but it's, it's, is it an ordeal from, from a logistical perspective for um, law enforcement to not just get a search warrant but execute the search warrant? So it's a big commitment of resources. This is not as depicted on TV, having one or two people show up to rummage through files. 
Um, and so, especially when you're talking about electronic evidence, computers and such, there's a, a protocol that needs to be followed. There are a number of agents who are going to be deployed. And then, you know, even in a white collar search, um, people don't generally react well to having their premises searched. There's an element of risk involved in that. And so these agents are armed and they come in um, meaning business and expecting that there might be trouble. And these are agents that are normally working on, in, in this case and in other ones that, that you and I have worked on, they're essentially white collar agents where they normally go to work and they're pushing paper around and they're in an office and um, on the for the search warrants, they get to wear a raid jacket, they get to you pull, pull their gun out of mothballs. I remember the agents just love search warrants. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. And then to give them their due, one of the other advantages of a search warrant, which you know generally happens by complete surprise, is that it gives the agents an opportunity to fan out and talk to people who are there, who are generally scared out of their minds, and who are more likely to answer questions in that setting than if they were um, confronted days or weeks later. And they don't have defense lawyers lurking about obstructing justice and representing these people, correct? <laughs> Generally not. So the search warrant is executed at the Balco premises and um, the investigation begins and takes a number of steps. One of the focuses of the investigation on the part of the agents in law enforcement is a guy named Greg Anderson who's affiliated with Balco. What can you tell us about Greg Anderson? So, so Anderson uh, was a trainer at a place called World Gym, which was located just up the road from, uh, from Balco. But I think the reason they actually were interested in Greg Anderson is that uh, he had been observed working out with Barry Bonds. And, and the, uh, apparently the investigators hired uh, or they, they had a state law enforcement agent who they had go undercover to try to work out with Greg Anderson as a means to getting to bonds, uh, but apparently this fell through because after the agent trained, after the agent trained with Greg Anderson a couple times, the workouts were so grueling that he had a stroke, and he had to be taken off that detail. So apparently it was a pretty uh, pretty impressive uh, workout re regimen they had there. So another another thing that's going on while Greg Anderson is being investigated is that dozens of baseball players are being brought into the grand jury in San Francisco. Um, reportedly, all of these players are being immunized. They're not the targets of the investigation. They're given immunity to presumably to talk about, um, you know, w what their sources of steroids or other performance-hancing drugs were, correct? Yes. And that that's not uh, an atypical... Uh, law enforcement decision to not go after the sort of users of drugs, but to try to get them to go after suppliers. Yeah. I mean, I'd say that's sort of a typical page out of the playbook. And so one of the people that goes and testifies in the grand jury in the fall of 2003 uh, is Barry Bonds. And we'll get to that in a second. But while the Balco investigation is getting underway, something really strange happens. Um, President George W. Bush gives his State of the Union address in 2004, um, just a few weeks after Barry Bonds went in the grand jury. Uh, he talks about the war on terror. He talks about health care. He talks about jobs. And then he weirdly takes a few minutes to decry the use of steroids in sports. Athletics play such an important role in our society. But unfortunately, some in professional sports are not setting much of an example. The use of performance-enhancing drugs like steroids in baseball, football, and other sports is dangerous, and it sends the wrong message that there are shortcuts to accomplishment and that performance is more important than character. So tonight, I call on team owners, union representatives, coaches and players to take the lead, to send the right signal, to get tough, and to get rid of steroids now. 
Now, apart from the oddity of steroids making it into the State of the Union address, is there something ironic about President George W. Bush being the president that mentions this? Yeah. So, I mean, he was the owner of the Texas Rangers uh, back or a co-owner back for uh, prior to his presidency. Um, and, you know, he, when he ran for president in 2000, he made um, the observation that one of his greatest regrets was uh, allowing uh, Sammy Sosa to be traded away from the Rangers <laughs> to the White Sox. So it, it is deeply ironic. And, you know, in general, it's just weird that uh, a president uh, at a time when the country was facing a number of challenges highlighted um, steroids and sports as a priority issue. I think it's also weird and ironic that when uh, Bush was an owner of the Texas Rangers um, in the, the 90s, this was a period when Major League Baseball's ownership wasn't doing anything to police steroids. That's correct. So President Bush took some, you know, good-natured abuse for talking about steroids in the State of the Union. He was mocked by ESPN and I believe actually by Meryl Streep at the Grammys. Uh, the Department of Justice, though, was, was taking this pretty seriously, um, as we'll see. So a few weeks after Bush's address, um, Balco head Victor Conte, two other Balco execs, execs, and Greg Anderson are indicted in San Francisco um, on 42 counts of conspiracy and money laundering and so forth. Now, does the Department of Justice normally do anything to publicize an event like an indictment? Yeah. In just about every case, there's a press release. And that's sort of the typical way in which a U.S. attorney's office will communicate an indictment, a guilty plea, or a sentencing. And the purpose of this is probably the general deterrence function of the criminal sanction. Is that correct? That, that is correct. So what happened here, though? What happened with the Balco indictments? So um, there was a press conference and, you know. Not just a press release, a press conference. Press conference. So um, in the, if you look at the universe of, um, of indictments, only a small subset are going to have a press conference. And in this instance, not only was there a press conference, but it was a press conference that was presided over by the attorney general, not the U.S. attorney. And it was in, in Washington, not in San Francisco, where the indictment was returned. That's correct. And so the agents and the assistant U.S. attorneys, they're flown across the country, and the U.S. attorney from San Francisco, they're flown across the country for this, this press conference and it's actually televised live by ESPN. That's that must be very unusual in this context. Yeah, it, it it's it's certainly the exception to the normal practice. So at at the press conference, uh, Attorney General Ashcroft reads from the the press release, and I want to get to that in a second. But it, it's interesting that apparently Attorney General Ashcroft, uh, a Missouri native, former governor of Missouri, former senator from Missouri and a lifelong St. Louis Cardinals fan whose favorite player was Hall of Famer Stan Musial. Um, and he apparently was not happy that these guys on steroids were breaking the records that had been sent by Stan Musial and some of these older guys who really had skinny arms when you look <laughs> at the pictures. Um, so here's what Ashcroft reads at the press conference. The tragedy of so-called performance-enhancing drugs is that they foster the lie that excellence can be can be bought rather than earned and that physical potential is an asset to be exploited rather than a gift to be nurtured. Illegal steroid use calls into question not only the integrity of the athletes who use them, but also the integrity of the sports those athletes play. Now, putting aside whether that's true, is this an unusual thing for the Department of Justice to be talking about in a press release. Yeah, so it, it actually is utterly bizarre um, because the federal interest in safeguarding the integrity of baseball would seem remote. I mean, baseball is a private uh, 
a private organization, and baseball had taken steps, albeit relatively recently at that point, to try to address the problem. It's not clear what, um, what legitimate federal interest was being vindicated here. So there's a, there's a lighter note from the Balco press release that I do want to point out because sometimes the government loves to put, um, you know, little Easter eggy type things in press releases. The, the press release describes Victor Conte um, essentially, I guess, trying to obstruct justice by he, he's encouraging all of his employees to be careful what they say in email. And he tells them, Remember that all emails are saved for a very long time, so be careful about how you say what you say. Searches for keywords like anabolic and many others are going on at all times by Big Brother. Uh, and, of course, how do you think he communicated that advice to his employees? That, that would have been by email. By email, of course. Um, so notwithstanding um, this, the, the, the hubbaloo over the indictments, and, and by the way, in the press release, as, a, as it's practiced, the Department of Justice always points out the maximum penalty for each count. Uh, so in the Balco press release, they pointed out that for each of the 42 counts, each one of the defendants could serve a maximum of 5 to 20 years based on the charges, you know, looking at 200, 300 years in prison. Um, that, that's a... I can't. I don't know if the Department of Justice still does that, but that also seemed to me putting apart the importance of the general deterrence function of the criminal sanction uh, to be somewhat misleading. Yeah, I mean, it's um, people aren't sentenced uh, in that way, but it's new. It's newsworthy, and it allows uh, the ESPNs of the world to talk about the astronomical punishment that somebody theoretically could face. So notwithstanding that press release, I mean, Conte, Conte and Anderson and others, they, they ultimately plead guilty not to the 42 counts in the indictment, uh, but just to two counts of illegal steroid distribution. And their sentences are not 200 years or 300 years. I think, I think Conte gets eight months and Anderson gets four months. Um, that the press conference on those guilty pleas and sentences was not held in Washington, and I do not believe that John Ashcroft attended those. So, Mark, let's get let's get let's focus in on the Barry Bonds investigation. So, early on in the Barry Bonds investigation, uh, like some of the other baseball players who testified in the grand jury in San Francisco, uh, he is subpoenaed to the grand jury. Uh, and his lawyer negotiates uh, an immunity deal. Um, if you're representing a witness in a grand jury investigation, uh, getting a grant of immunity is, forgive me, that's a home run, right? It, it is. And if you get a witness in that situation, fortunate enough to get immunity, what is the one thing that you tell them? You tell them to tell the truth, the truth, and the truth. Because and nothing the one, because the one way they can get into trouble is not telling the truth. They're immunized from the conduct that's at issue, and all they have to do is go into the grand jury and tell the truth. Correct. So Bonds testifies in the grand jury under a grant of immunity. Uh, he's asked questions about his use of steroids. He's asked questions about his relationship with Greg Anderson. Um, Suffice it to say for now that the government was not satisfied with that testimony. Um, but interestingly, I mean, the prosecutors, after Bonds testifies in the grand jury, they continue to zealously pursue an investigation of Bonds even after he had been immunized and testified in the grand jury. Is that unusual? It's very unusual. Why? Well, having made the judgment to immunize him, presumably the prosecutors believed that he wasn't worthy of prosecution. Somewhere along the way, and it may have been because they were angry about his testimony or about his interactions with them, they pivoted and uh, turned around and took a witness for whom they previously had decided immunity was the right answer and made him a target of prosecution. And what is it, when you say a target of prosecution, what do you mean by that? I mean, well, I'm using it in the colloquial sense of 
they were focused on trying to make a case against Barry Bonds. And over the next uh, couple of years, they go to some pretty extreme lengths to try to make against against Barry to make a case against Barry Bonds. Um, let's talk about Jason Grimsley, another Major League Baseball player. Who was Jason Grimsley? So if Bonds was the star of all stars in uh, the early 2000s, Jason Grimsley was the guy at the other end of the spectrum. He had a long, fairly undistinguished career and was just kind of hanging on as a middle reliever who played for a bunch of different teams. I looked at his lifetime stats, and it, it appears he was able to stay in baseball for 17 seasons without ever being a starter or a closer, which seems fairly unusual. Yeah. So these are the two, when you say these are the two extremes, these are two people who might be tempted by performance-enhancing drugs in very different ways, correct? Correct. So what happens to Jason Grimsley? So um, the government identifies him as uh, somebody who has uh, received a delivery of human growth uh, hormone, another performance-enhancing drug. And so uh, agents uh, approach him at a time when he's received uh, a delivery of the drugs, threaten to uh, execute a search warrant in front of his wife and kids, and basically... Um, in that way, strong-arm him into submitting to an interview. So he is interviewed, he makes admissions, uh, then what happens? Um, so the government <coughs> was seeking to have him cooperate, and the uh, agents uh, thoughtfully advised him not to check with his own lawyer about uh, the wisdom of this. Is that, um, I know it happens all the time, but is that improper? That, that, that's improper. Uh, the government has no legitimate role to play when somebody is thinking about who, the, uh, if they're going to consult with a lawyer. So they execute another search warrant at Grimsley's house? They do, uh, after he decided he wasn't going to cooperate. And then I guess to show they mean business, they execute uh, a search warrant, and then they again try to uh, get Grimsley to provide information about bonds. So it's worth noting that while this investigation of Barry Bonds is proceeding after his grand jury testimony, uh, in, in 2004, he has what is arguably his greatest season at age 39. He sets a record for having 120 intentional walks, an all-time MLB record, and also the all-time MLB record for 232 walks in a season. Including at least one instance where he was intentionally walked with the bases loaded. I think multiple instances. Yeah. And in, in, in one game, he was walked intentionally four times. So putting that aside, uh, the feds also make another run at Greg Anderson in going against Bonds. What happens there? So um, he served that short prison term, and he gets released in 2005. And then uh, the government subpoenaed Anderson to appear in the uh, grand jury proceeding, the grand jury that was investigating Bonds. And what happens? So um, the government provides him with a grant of immunity, that is, provides Anderson with a grant of immunity. And uh, notwithstanding that, he refuses to testify. So just can you explain how this works? If you get immunity, um, you are... You, you you will not be incriminated based on what you would say in the grand jury, but you do have to still testify. Yeah. So um, the way to think about it is that um, a witness has a Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. An immunity order compels the witness to um, to testify and testify truthfully, and in exchange for that, the order protects. The witness from that which the Fifth Amendment otherwise would protect, which is having that used, that testimony used against the witness. So it's sometimes called a compulsion order, correct? Correct. I, I once dealt with a prosecutor in your old office who, whenever I was trying to negotiate an immunity deal for a witness, he, he, he couldn't let the words immunity cross his lips. He insisted on calling it a compulsion order as if immunity sounded like some federal entitlement, like food stamps or something. He just would not be, say that word. 
So Greg Anderson gets immunity, refuses to testify, and then he's found in contempt and he goes to prison, correct? That's correct. And, and, and that's a civil contempt. It's a, the, it's a, uh, a mechanism to try to coerce the witness into actually testifying. As they say, the witness holds the key to his prison cell. So he could have gotten out of jail if he wanted to simply by saying he would testify in the grand jury. Correct. How unusual is that for a witness to get immunity and still refuse to testify? So it's pretty rare. Um, I've seen it before in mob cases or, or drug organization cases. Not typically the case um, in any other. So Bonds is ultimately indicted on November 15th, 2007. Um, he had just finished his age 42 season for the Giants where he hit 28 homers and had an OPS of 1.045, which is still not too shabby. Yeah, he'd be, uh, that's M, uh, most valuable player level. Uh, and he's doing that at a uh, very old age. So the indictment is is based on five charges, one count of obstruction, four counts of perjury, and all of the counts are focused um, similarly on various non-responsive answers that Bonds gave in the grand jury. Um, and the obstruction count, which ends up being the one count on which he was convicted of at trial, is based on the the following exchange. I actually think we should just read it to each other. Do, do you want to be the assistant U.S. attorney or Barry Bonds? Yeah, I'll, I'll be the AUSA. Okay, so let's do the, the Q&A here. Go ahead. Did Greg Anderson ever give you anything that required a syringe to inject yourself with? I've only had one doctor touch me, and that's my only personal doctor. Greg, like I said, we don't get into each other's personal lives. We're friends, but I don't. we don't sit around and talk baseball because he knows I don't want, don't come to my house talking baseball. If you want to come to my house and talk about fishing, some other stuff, we'll be good friends. You come talking about baseball, you go on. I don't talk about his business, you know what I mean? Right. That's what keeps our friendship. You know, I'm sorry, but that, you know that I was a celebrity child, not just in baseball, by my own instincts. I became a celebrity child with a famous father. I just don't get into other people's business because of my father's situation, you see. That's it. That's the basis for the charge. Mark, what is your take on this testimony? Now, we've all had certain clients that are less linear than others in how they respond to, like, questions. Uh, but what do you make of this testimony? So, um... This is not especially responsive testimony um, under any standard. And I certainly had witnesses uh, that I questioned in the grand jury when I was a prosecutor who um, were similarly non-responsive. And I've had some witnesses as a defense lawyer who prosecutors told me were uh, non-responsive. Do you, do you have any theories as to why there's no follow-up questions? I mean, he's not, you know, we've all dealt with people in depositions and grants who don't answer the question. You normally follow up and try to get them to answer, right? Correct. Why didn't this happen? Do you have any theories on why this didn't happen here? I think that at the time of this uh, testimony, the prosecutor was intent on, um, on indicting bonds, notwithstanding the immunity and did not want to provide him with an opportunity through follow-up questions to clean up the um, non-responsive mess that had been created. So let's let's step back and let's 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 pretend you're the prosecutor here. Now, we've all had this thing where we you know we take a deposition or we put a witness in the grand jury and you kind of have a feel for how it goes, but you're not really sure until you read the transcript, right? So the prosecutor goes back to his office, gets the transcript in a few days, and he, and he looks at it, and he sees that, you know, this sort of pattern of non-responsiveness. Now, if you were the prosecutor and 
you thought that Bonds had actually been impeding the investigation through his testimony, what would you have done? So actually, whether I thought he was impeding the uh, investigation or whether I thought he was just a bad witness who can't answer a question, um, I would have done the same thing, which is pick up the phone, call his lawyer and say, essentially, we have a problem. He wasn't responsive. I want to give him one last chance to come in and testify and actually answer my questions. And doing that would have been consistent with the idea that he was immunized. And the reason he was immunized is that somebody in the government believes that his truthful testimony would be useful in building a case against someone else. Now, what if, on the other hand, you were the prosecutor and what you wanted to do was to prosecute Barry Bonds based on his answers in the grand jury? What would you have done then? I would have done what uh, was done here, which is absolutely nothing. No, no, I think actually the right answer is this is what they did. But if I really thought the guy was trying to obstruct, what I would have done is bring him back and try to essentially make clear that he really was not being truthful, that he really was trying to obstruct the investigation. So you'd be able to go to trial with a, a better record or a, 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 at least a cleaner example of him not telling the truth in the, in the grand jury. That's exactly right. And, and with a record also of making multiple attempts to ferret out the truth as opposed to the, the one follow-up question here in response to an, a non-responsive answer, which was right. So, so Bonds, he goes to trial. Um, the trial is originally scheduled to begin in February of 2009, but days before trial, um, the defense succeeds on a motion in limine and is able to keep some of the government's evidence from being admitted at trial. It was some records and the government, the court ruled that they were hearsay. Um, and the government does something unusual here. They actually take an appeal from the court's pretrial evidentiary ruling. Um, why is that such an unusual thing? So it happens very, very rarely. And for the government to take that kind of interlocutory appeal, an appeal uh, prior to the trial, the government's got to certify that, number one, not only do they believe there was legal error in excluding the evidence, but also that um, the evidence that's been excluded is so significant that it literally could have a bearing on the outcome of the case. So it, it, it's something of a, maybe not a Hail Mary, but it's something of a desperate act, correct? It, it is. I, in my career as a prosecutor, I only did it once, and it was in a case where the district court judge had literally suppressed all of our evidence so that if we had gone to trial, we would have had nothing to, uh, to introduce. And I might add, we won on appeal. <laughs> did you win way back a trial? Uh, there was a plea. There was a plea. So Bonds' trial begins two years after the original date of 2009. Trial begins in 2011, eight years after his grand jury testimony. And although the charges are per— And four years after his career was ended by the indictment. Correct. So the trial begins. Um, the focus of the trial, the, the, the charges are not based on drug use, but because the perjury and obstruction go to um, answers about steroid use and so forth. The whole focus of the trial was whether Bonds knowingly used steroids. Um, Anderson is again subpoenaed to testify at trial. He's given immunity. He again refuses, and he again is imprisoned. Um, a 12-day trial. The government calls 25 witnesses. The defense calls none. That's not unusual in a criminal trial, is it? No. I mean, the duration, I think, is, is well within the norm. And it's not unusual for the defense not to call any witnesses either, correct? Correct. The, guy, the defense would stand on the presumption of innocence and put, try to put its case in through the cross-examination of government witnesses. 
And I think there's sometimes prosecutors end up not being very good cross-examining lawyers because basically as a prosecutor, you don't get much experience in cross-examining people. You don't get as much as uh, you do on the defense side, that's for sure. Uh, one of the witnesses at trial is Jason, Jason Giambi, the 2000 American League MVP, uh, who testified that he received steroids from Greg Anderson, that he understood there were steroids, the obvious implication being Bonds must have understood as well. Um, did you ever have Jason Giambi in any of your fantasy baseball leagues? I did at the very end, and he was really bad by that point. Was he off the steroids? He was apparently off the steroids. Uh, doctors testified about Bonds' increased hat size, his unusual muscle growth. Uh, his ex-girlfriend, Kimberly Bell, testified that Bonds had admitted to her that he used steroids uh, and that his testicles had shrunk, apparently a common side effect of steroid use. Putting aside the, the graphic nature of that testimony, does it say anything to you about the strength of the prosecution's case that they were relying on the testimony of an ex-girlfriend? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, an ex-girlfriend uh, comes freighted with a lot of baggage and a lot of questions about um, her biases against, uh, against bonds. But I think the government was literally throwing the kitchen sink uh, uh, or was throwing everything at him in an effort to convict him of something. So the jury verdict is mixed. Um, they hang on the perjury counts. And when the jurors spoke afterwards to the press, which they a lot of them did here, they seemed to be very much in favor of, of bonds on the perjury counts. Uh, the voters were penalty 8493 on a couple of the perjury counts. They vote for conviction on the obstruction count, the one that you and I read. Um, based on all this effort, what was Bonds' sentence? So he received a sentence of 30 days of home detention. That's zero time in jail, correct? Correct. And that's an extraordinarily light sentence in the federal system. I mean, um, if he had pled guilty, that would have been regarded as a very light sentence. For somebody who went to trial, put the court and the government through the burden of a trial, refused to acknowledge culpability, and was nonetheless convicted, this is about as light a sentence as you'll ever see. I mean, the only thing, what straight probation would be, there's, there's not much you could actually speak that would be lighter in terms of a sentence, correct? Correct. I'm assuming in Bonds' case that 30 days at his house was not an especial hardship. <laughs> so uh, Bonds appeals. Uh, he First of all, he would move for a, a new trial for the judge. That's denied. He appeals to the Ninth Circuit. The A three-judge panel of the Ninth Circuit uh, affirms the conviction and, but then he gets on-bank review before the entire Ninth Circuit. And what happens there? So the um, on-bank court reverses um, and reverses pretty resoundingly uh, by 10 uh, out of the 11 active judges voting to reverse the conviction. And what's the, what's the basic um, uh, reasoning behind the reversal? So... Um, uh, the, it's legal error with respect to the uh, obstruction statute, and uh, in particular as to the materiality requirement of the uh, of the statute. Now there are there are eleven judges that are on this panel, and um, there are five opinions, four uh, opinions calling for reversal, and one calling for affirmance. Why do you think there were so many? Um, opinions in this case. So, so it's hard to know for sure, but I don't think it had to do with um, great public or judicial interest in the interpretation <laughs> of Section 1503. I think it illustrates that when celebrities are involved, um, judges like other people can be mesmerized. And I suspect a number of the judges just wanted to have their own word um, in a uh, celebrity case. It's sort of, uh, it's maybe a bad example, but it is a little bit of the Lance Ito effect from uh, the OJ case. 
Put me in, coach. I can play center field, right? It's this. Everybody wants a piece of this kind of action, uh, even these incredibly distinguished judges. Well, so, Mark, it'd be, it'd be nice to say that the Balco investigation and the prosecution of Barry Bonds were, you know, isolated instances of prosecutorial zeal uh, during the so-called steroids era. But, of course, it wasn't. I mean, there were congressional hearings were held. Roger Clemens is ultimately indicted for lying before Congress. Uh, the Department of Justice tries him twice, the first one mistrials due to DOJ error, and then he's eventually found not guilty by a jury in the second trial. Um, is all of this, you know, what, what are your thoughts on all of this as a, um, as, a, as, a, as a use of, you know, the criminal law enforcement sanction, resources? What's, what, did, what was going on here? Yeah, so it seems as if this was a type of investigation that's sometimes characterized as being target-driven, and that is the agents and the prosecutors make a decision that they want to try to convict a particular person or people of crimes and then build a case against them. Um, in some instances, that's not merely a legitimate uh, law enforcement technique. It's a smart technique. And the sort of classic example is Al Capone, who um, was brought down because of tax violations. He was a major mobster, and there was a judgment made that uh, focusing on him and trying to convict him of things, uh, even if they weren't sort of core mob activity, would further the federal interest. Here, um, given that at, the, at that time, at least, the very tenuous links between the integrity of baseball and legitimate federal interest, it's hard to see how this made any sense whatsoever. Is it an exaggeration to say that if the resources of the Department of Justice are focused on a particular individual, um, given the breadth of the federal criminal code, that it's not too hard to find something to charge the person with? That, that's a fact. I remember thinking when I was a first couple of weeks I was in AUSA when I realized I could get from the department, I could get from the IRS, anyone that was investigating their tax returns. And then if you can get someone's tax returns and you can also find that they applied for a loan, there's going to be fraud there because when you're talking to the IRS, you want to be poor. When you're trying to get a loan, you want to be rich. There's no conceivable way those two documents are going to be able to hang together. Yeah, I, I'd put it a little differently from my perspective as a defense lawyer. There may be inconsistencies, but the inconsistencies do not rise to fraud. One last reflection on Barry Bonds. Um, the term perjury trap has been in the news in the past couple of years. Uh, Rudy Giuliani said, has said on television several times that uh, he refused to let President Trump testify, testify before um, people in the Mueller investigation because he thought President Trump was being uh, walking into a perjury trap. Now, as a defense attorney and a, and, a, and a former prosecutor, I mean, is a perjury trap a real thing? And is that what happened to Barry Bonds here? So it's a really a fair question to ask whether it's a real thing. It's, I mean, it's a defense that is often invoked and but, almost never successful. I'm not sure it's ever succeeded. Yeah, I, uh, because the idea of illegally procuring the perjured testimony, that, that's sort of the core concept of the perjury trap. And the government could engage in pretty sleazy conduct and uh, conduct, uh, as in uh, the Bonds case, that's inconsistent with the immunity order, but it falls, I think, way short of rising to something that a court would recognize as a basis for dismissing an indictment. So if a perjury trap exists and could be defined as sort of impermissibly using the grand jury to try to get someone to commit perjury without any other legitimate investigative purpose. Why would it not? I mean, it seems clear here that the prosecutors decided even before 
they put Barry Bonds into the grand jury that if he testified differently than they wanted him to in the grand jury or differently than they expected him to in the grand jury, they were going to prosecute him for perjury. Why would, not, why, why would that not be a perjury trap? Because he had an obligation to testify truthfully, and if they had put um, coherent questions to him for which he provided uh, answers, he had an opportunity to, um, to avoid a perjury trap by testifying truthfully. And so um, I, I don't... I mean, I don't think that defense was available here, as bad as the questioning was. Mark, any any final reflections on the Department of Justice's actions in pursuing the in investigation and prosecution of Barry Bonds in, so, in the steroid era generally? Yeah, so it's it clearly was a ridiculous prosecutorial judgment to to bring this case. Ironically, though, today. In an era where uh, a number of states have legalized sports gambling, there's at least the beginning of an argument that there's a federal interest in protecting the integrity of sports on which citizens are placing bets. That wasn't present at the time of the steroid era. I still think it's a reach to say that these uh, are the sort of cases that would be important. I would hope, for example, that the Houston Astros will not be prosecuted for honest services fraud as a result of the alleged sign stealing uh, of a couple years ago. But, um, but at least now there is a plausible government interest that wasn't in existence during the steroid era. And you can see with these legalization movements, which are still in their infancy, um, those could develop in, you know, we could become, a, like in, in England, for example, there's a place on every street corner where you can make off-track betting. And the market becomes a much more important part of the of the community. And it could evolve that way here, I suppose, right? Um, one could imagine hearing prosecutors defend cases of this sort in the same way that prosecutors have argued about why insider trading prosecutions are important. Mark, that's a, a great insight. And I, I guess I do have to ask you, should Barry Bonds be in the Hall of Fame, in your opinion? Uh, without question. Roger Clemens, too. Mark, thank you so much for coming on. It's been great. Uh, I cannot let you go, though, without asking you the mandatory guest question. What was your first concert? What was the venue? Who did you go with? It was Bruce Springsteen in 1977 at the Masonic Temple in Detroit. And I went with a group of friends. Mark, thank you so much. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mark. Let's continue the conversation. You can find me, Jim Rehnquist, on GoodwinLaw.com or on LinkedIn. Talk to you later.